Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Everybody is a theologian. You're either a good theologian or a bad theologian. A good theologian thinks rightly about God according to Scripture. A bad theologian doesn't think rightly about God and doesn't believe who God is as he's revealed in Scripture. One of the great theologians of the 1980s was the pop band Tears for Fears. They were good theologians in this aspect, in that they understood the human condition when they said, everybody wants to rule the world. That's what we're going to talk about as we look at Jonah over the next six weeks. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah is in the Old Testament, for starters, if that helps. Jonah is one of the minor prophets. Maybe that helps. If it helps you, Jonah is in between Micah and Obadiah, if that helps you find it. Maybe it's in that portion of the Bible where the pages are still stuck together, perhaps. Let's pray as we begin. Father, as we look at Jonah, may we begin to see that we are Jonah. As we look at Jonah, God, may we see in the pages of your word a mirror which is showing us who we are. But more important than that, Father... As we look at your word, may we see you as you truly are. And may we be good theologians who love you with our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. And may we never run from you when you pull us back, God. May we not resist. We will run, Father. But thank you for your son, Jesus, that he died to bring us to you. And thank you for your relentless grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a 2003 Wall Street Journal article, Jared Sandberg said this in his article, Some cold employees may never find relief. Looking for an office thermostat that actually works? Good luck and Godspeed. You may never find it. The controls for your company's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, or HVAC, are likely hidden in the office ducts. If you do spy, do spy a thermostat, it's probably locked or encased behind shatterproof glass. Even worse, HVAC's experts acknowledge what millions of office workers have suspected all along. A lot of office thermostats are completely fake. Meant to dupe you into thinking you've altered the office weather conditions. The specialists are unrepentant, fed up with complaints from sweaty men and shivering women. HVAC technicians install dummy thermostats to give workers the illusion of control. In some leased buildings, even the corporate tenants don't know the thermostats are useless. Other times, it's the companies themselves barraged with calls from workers who ask the landlord's HVAC technicians to fix things. Richard Dawson, an HVAC specialist from Homer, Illinois, who has several landlord clients, says too many office workers feel their environment is anything but what they want it to be. Better to install a dummy thermostat when they're out to lunch, he figures. 
He estimates that 90% of office thermostats are dummies. Others say it's below 2%. Does he feel bad? I did what my employer told me to do, Mr. Dawson says. The complainers in the cubicles wore him out. You just get tired of dealing with him and you screw in a cheap thermostat. Guess what? They quit calling you. Outrageous, as if we haven't been living enough business lies now this. Thermo fraud threatens to make more of us look like fools than the new economy and the disco era combined. Scott McDaniel, an HVAC technician in North Augusta, South Carolina, installed a dummy thermostat and actually bothered to attach a wire to the back of it, one that dead-ended into the thin, uncomfortable office air. He hoped the wire would fool the office meddler. He says, there's always someone who thinks they're a technician. That's just one of several examples where the mere illusion of control seems to satisfy us. Plenty of placebo buttons give the same false impression. The fact of the matter is that we all want control. We all want to rule the world. We want control of every detail of our lives. We want to control who we spend time with. We want to control how a conversation goes. We want to control the drive through lane at In-N-Out. We want to control where we sit in the sanctuary, who we sit by, and how close we sit to them. We want to control everything in our lives. We're control freaks, aren't we? And we want to control God too. Biblical counselor Winston Smith said, we are sinners. The actions of others, pleasant or unpleasant, simply shape our ever-present desire to replace God. See, the prophet Jonah wanted to control his life too. He wanted to control God. And that's why we are looking at the book of Jonah. I've titled this series Relentless Grace because that's what we will see. We will see God's grace hunting and chasing down a runaway prophet. And we'll hopefully see in our own lives that God has repeatedly done that to us since we became Christians. We will see in this book the most famous and well-known of the minor prophets that God graciously pursues rebels. We will see God relentlessly pursuing Jonah, pursuing the pagan sailors that he will encounter, and pursuing the pagan Ninevites, the city to which God has called Jonah to go. So God's interested in Jonah, his prophet, one of his people, And he's interested in these pagan, wicked, unbelieving people. That's the kind of God that he is. God's pursuing his people and those who aren't his people yet. That's why the title to this sermon is Dreadfully Cracked About the Head and Sadly in Need of Mending. It comes from Herman Melville's famous book, Moby Dick, where he says, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Jonah will teach us that every human being born into this world, every human being conceived in the womb is dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. We are sinners. 
We are all broken. We all need mending. We all need to be fixed. We all need transformation. And the only thing that will transform us is the gospel message. It's what believers need for transformation, and it's obviously what unbelievers need so that they can be reconciled to a holy God and then begin the process of transformation. That's Melville's point when he says, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. He's saying, heaven have mercy on us all, those who are Christians and those who aren't, because we are all dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Both God's people and the lost people of this world need fixing. We need transformation because we're all messed up. God relentlessly pursues rebels. That's what the book of Jonah is about. He pursues rebels who uh, have not turned to him. And he pursues his children who are running from him. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, wants to transform Jonah and the people that he encounters in this book. God wants to transform his people and the pagans of this world. God wants to transform his church and the city. And he does that through the gospel message that Christ died to bring us to God. Here's our big idea for today. What controls your heart controls your life. Whatever's happening in your heart will control everything in your life. So if you're stressed out, stress is going to control everything. If you're an angry, bitter person, it's going to determine how you live in this world. What controls your heart? What's occupying your mind and your thoughts and your feelings and affections will inevitably determine and control and rule every aspect of your life. Jonah will teach us that if God's word is not ruling your heart, then something else will, and that something else will be directing the course of your life. Jonah wanted control of his life. And if our lives are not changed at our roots, at the roots of our hearts, at our core, then any changes that come will just be temporary and cosmetic. And that's what we'll see with Jonah. Even after he preaches to the city of Nineveh, he has heart problems. He gets exposed again because he cares more for a dead plant than dead people, the Ninevites. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's get a few introductory matters out of the way as we begin. As far as the author of the book, nobody knows. I think it's Jonah. I think Jonah has written this story down for us because he says, you know what? Everybody's like me. They've got heart problems and they've got control issues. And so I think Jonah wrote his story down. I think it took place sometime in the 8th century B.C. Just a heads up, if you hear me say the word Yahweh, 
That's what you'll see in the Bible. Look at verse 1. You see the, the, the name Lord there in all capital letters. That's the translators letting us know that this is the Hebrew name, Yahweh, God's covenant name. And, and because you can't teach an old dog new tricks, I'm just used to saying Yahweh. So when I say Yahweh, I mean the Lord, I mean God, I mean Jesus. Okay, it's who I'm talking about here. This is the Lord. So if you hear me say Yahweh, you know, don't, don't freak out on me and say, who's that? This is who God has revealed himself to be. This is, this is my name, Yahweh. I am. Even though, here's what's interesting about Jonah. Even though he's included in the minor prophets, and even though he's probably the most famous of the minor prophets, even famous of all the prophets, because he gets so much face time in Sunday school classes, right? Everybody knows Jonah. Even my kids were drawing pictures of Jonah this morning in my office. And I was, even a six-year-old knows Jonah. Everybody knows Jonah. Here's what's interesting about Jonah. He is a prophet. His story is included in the minor prophets. And there's not much prophecy in the book. Five words in Hebrew are all we get of Jonah's message of prophecy. And yet he's the most famous of the prophets. It's two pages, 48 verses of God's call to Jonah, a man, to go to a city, a very big, wicked, evil city in a foreign nation. And in these two pages, in these 48 verses of this minor prophet, we get a picture of the mission of God, the mission that God is on in this world, that God relentlessly pursues rebels. God is pursuing Jonah. God is pursuing the pagans, the pagan sailors in the boat, the pagan people in the city of Nineveh. And God, we see a picture of his transforming grace for the church and for the city and for the nations, that God is interested in transforming cities and nations. And we see a picture, so a picture of God reaching the nations. But as we talk about the mission of God, don't just think missionaries going to the nations. The mission of God is to redeem and to restore all of creation. And we get a picture of that, of the creator God, because he uses the wind, the sea, a fish, a plant, a worm, a sun, etc. He uses all of creation to get Jonah's attention. And the last verse in the book, God says, I care for the cattle of the city. It's a picture that God cares about his creation. And the mission of God is to redeem sinners from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. To restore them into fellowship with him. But the mission of God is also to restore all of creation. Which he will do one day when he makes the earth brand new. So we see a snapshot of the mission of God in the book of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. Maybe you're new and you've never read it. It's the story of Yahweh. We talked about him, the sovereign Lord, who, who tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, this wicked, evil city, cry out against it because the evil way that they're living has come, has, has come up before me. Jonah says, no way. He gets on a boat, says, I'm out of here. He's on this boat, and the Lord, he actually takes a nap, and he's sleeping really well at the bottom of this boat. The sailors wake him up. They throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by this fish, spends three days, three nights in the fish. He prays inside the fish. The fish vomits him up. He then, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. He goes to Nineveh. He cries out against it. The city repents. They turn from their sin. Jonah has a pity party. He goes outside the city to see what's going to happen. The Lord lets a plant grow up to give him some shade, and then the Lord appoints a worm to kill the plant and then Jonah gets mad because he gets a sunburn and his lips get chapped and he's angry at the Lord because you Yahweh destroyed my perfect shade tree 
And Yahweh says, you care about that plant. And you didn't do anything to make it grow. You should care about the city. You should care about Nineveh because it's full of people and cattle. And the Lord says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's the story of Jonah. Jonah will teach us that what controls your heart controls your life. Whatever's happening inside of your heart will control your life. Jonah wanted to rule his life. Jonah wanted control of his life. And God's word was not ruling Jonah's heart. Look at verses 1 to 2 again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee. So he gets this word from the Lord. He's a prophet. This is his job. This is what he should love to do. He gets the word of the Lord. And then there's that Hebrew word, but. The contrast. The word of Yahweh. Your master comes to you. Go cry out against the city. But Jonah got up. And he ran away from the presence of the Lord. As if you could run away from the presence of the Lord. This is not the first time that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it says, He, King Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. The first time, at least as recorded in Scripture, that Jonah hears God's word, he does what God wants him to do. But this time, He hears the word of the Lord and he runs away. Why? Why, Jonah, do you not want to do what the Lord has called you to do? What does he have against preaching the word of the Lord? The answer, Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. The city of Nineveh was located 600 miles northeast of Israel in modern-day Iraq, had a population of 120,000. That's what Jonah 4.11 says. And it was a very prominent city. That's what the phrase, that great city, means in verse 2. It was a great city. It was a very important city. In fact, to give you a little homework for this week, read through Jonah and notice how many times the word great shows up. Just look through, read through that and see. This is a great city. It was located in Assyria, and depending on exactly when this occurred, Assyria was either uh, threatening Israel at at this moment, or they were about to threaten Israel. The Israelites did not like the Assyrians. But why did they not like the Assyrians? What was it about them? The Assyrians were a, a dominant political power on the ancient Near Eastern landscape. They were one of the big dogs, but they were mean They were bullies. There are scores of historical documents describing the cruelty of the Assyrians. Listen to this. One of their kings, uh, King Ashurnasirpal I, there's there's a baby name for some of you. Split it up, you got two names, Ashurnasirpal. Ashurnasirpal I described his conquest this way. His military conquest, going to battle. He says, I failed 50 of their fighting men with the sword, burnt 200 captives from them, and defeated in a battle on the plain 332 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool, and the rest of them, the ravines and torrents of the mountain swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built therewith a tower before their city, and I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. 
He made a tower out of all these heads. People that he, and he, he took the teenage youth group and said, come here, and he set them all on fire. Another description of the conquest is even worse. He says, in strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off of some their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. And I hung their heads on trees around the city. These people were wicked. They were evil. Can you imagine your city gets, uh, they besiege your city. They, they, you, maybe you escape and they destroy everyone. They've cut off all these arms and ears and hands. And you come back into the city and, and scattered in the trees hanging like ornaments are all, all the heads of the people that you knew. These people were wicked and evil. King Ashurnasir Paul II bragged about his war techniques, and his usual technique was you burn the city, you mutilate all grown men who were prisoners by cutting off their hands and ears, gouging out their eyes, impiling their bodies in a great heap. You leave them to die from sunflies, heat, and suffocation. You take all the children and burn them at the stake. You take the chief of the city, cart him off to, to their home city where he would be flayed alive. The Assyrians were a grisly, gruesome, wicked people. So no wonder Jonah doesn't want to go preach the message of God's mercy to these people. It's hard to imagine that any Israelite, when hearing about the Assyrians, when hearing about the Ninevites, would have a neutral emotional response as the name Assyrian or Ninevite came up. And yet it was the word of the Lord for Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. His prejudice, his hatred, his racism got in the way of obeying the Lord. His feelings, his personal feelings took precedence over the word of God. Listen, you are on a very slippery slope When your feelings, how you feel about a matter, take precedent over the sovereign word of God. Let me say that again. You are on a very slippery slope. When you let your feelings take precedence over the very clear, sovereign word of God. I've met so many people who are living blatantly opposite of what they say they believe the word of God says... And they living opposite because of how they feel. You see, what controls your heart controls your life. For Jonah, it was prejudice against the Ninevites. He didn't want them to receive God's mercy. He didn't think these people deserved God's mercy. But Jonah forgot that just like the Ninevites, he was dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. And that's what this book is about. Don't skim over verse 1 because it's so important. You see, Jonah forgot 
how privileged he was to receive the word of the Lord. What grace it was to have God's word. So don't skim over verse one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a big deal. To have the word of the Lord is a big deal. To have God's complete revelation in the Bible is a very big deal. So don't skim over verse one to get to more juicier details. We've, we've got to hang out. We've got to camp out in verse one because to have the word of God is a big deal. One of the other minor prophets, Amos, would, would prophesy later in Amos chapter eight of a famine, but it's not just any sort of famine. He said, there's coming a day where there'll be a famine of the word of the Lord, that you will want God's word, but you will not be able to find it. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. We, we get so comfortable having our Bibles and we forget what a grace it is to have the very clear, sovereign words of our God. O. Palmer Robertson, a commentator, says this, it would be far better to starve to death with your heart filled with the word of God than to be stuffed with food and be empty in your soul. Jonah had the very clear word of God and yet he disobeyed. Why? Because what controls your heart controls your life. If God's word is not deep down in your heart, then something else will direct and something else will control your life. For Jonah, it was racism and prejudice. His feelings for the Ninevites became his functional God. How he felt, his feelings became his God rather than God's clear word. What controls your heart controls your life, which is why Proverbs 4.23 says, keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We must be very careful when we become indifferent to this book, when we become indifferent to God's word. Because if this book is not directing our life and our feelings, how we feel about a matter, we're on a slippery slope. We've become like Jonah. Aren't we all guilty, though, of being indifferent to God's word? I am. That's why I love the convicting challenge of John Calvin. He issues to those who are indifferent to God's word. He's speaking about the book of Micah and Micah's prophecy, but it relates to Jonah. John Calvin said this, Thus, what took Micah some 38 to 40 years to preach, we can read within an hour. How immense our ingratitude then, if seeing Micah labored all of his life to exhort the people of his era, and that God so graciously provided such a brief summary of his teachings for us, that we should fail to esteem them or neglect to cast our eyes upon them. What Calvin means is that it took Micah 40 years to preach all of his prophecies, and we get 40 years worth of sermons condensed into a book that we could read in one hour, and so many times we don't care about Micah or Jonah or Philippians or any other portion of God's word. So many times we would rather 
read Fox News online. We'd rather read People Magazine, Rolling Stone. Uh, So many times we're so consumed with those things and we have the words of the living God right here. And they're free. This was the beginning of Jonah's downfall. Understand this, any running away from the Lord, any falling away, any descent into sin begins with a denial and an indifference to God's supreme and sovereign word. When you want to control your life, the first thing you will do is ignore the authoritative word of God. We're all like Jonah. I'm like Jonah. When I look at this right here, I see my reflection. I am Jonah. We want to replace God and his word as if our wisdom were better, as if our ways were right. And when we do this, we seek to wrestle control out of God's hands, and then we prove that we are dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. He is a good God. He is a wise God. He is a sovereign God. And he is directing every affair of our life to bring us good and to bring him glory. But so many times we want to replace him. We want to be in control. God, it would be better if you did this. God, it would be better if if this happened. Instead of sitting back and say, I trust you that you are good, that you are wise, that you are sovereign. And whatever your word says... That's what I want to do. In whatever way you're directing my life, I want to submit. I think Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper summarized the human condition well when he said, our heart is continually inclined to rebel against the Lord our God. So ready to rebel that, oh, so gladly, were it but for a single day, we would take from his hands the reins of his supreme rule, imagining that we would manage things far better and direct them far more effectively than God. That's Jonah. That's us. And that's what happened to Adam thousands of years ago in that garden. That's what's happened to every human being conceived and born into this world. We want control. We want our way. But thank God that he knew our sinful condition and did something to save us sinners who are dreadfully cracked about the head because of Adam's sin in the garden that came down to us. Praise God. Those of us who are sadly in need of mending that there is a remedy and it is the gospel message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what these elements at this table here represent today. This table here is for those who can confess that they do want control, but they know it's wrong. They know it's sin. And they repent and they turn from wanting control and turn from wanting to live their way. And they change their mind and they turn to the only one who has control and who alone can satisfy every desire of their heart. This table is for people who are Christians who say, God, I have offended you. I am a sinner. 
I'm dreadfully cracked about the head, sadly in need of many, and I've proved it by living my life. God, would you forgive me? I turn from living for myself. I turn from my sin. I turn from living in defiance of your holy commandments, and I trust and I believe in Jesus Christ who came and lived this, in this world perfectly, and he never sinned once. And he went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sins because we're so messed up and we could never get to God. And God poured his wrath out upon his son and raised him from the dead so that we, sinners, could be reconciled to him and be adopted into his family and to become his children. See, the reality is that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but we are more loved than we could ever dream. And that is the gospel. God loves you and sent his son. And Jesus took the blame for all of us Jonas out there who are trying to live our own way. There's, there's one who came, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, who, who fulfilled Psalm 40. I delight to do your will. Jesus never ran from his father and he perfectly obeyed God's commandments. And when you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, God takes your messed up life, your cracked in the head kind of life, your sadly in need of mending kind of life, and he transfers that to Jesus, and he gives you Jesus' perfect life. And when you do that, you're born again. You're adopted into God's family, and you have acceptance with God, and you're blameless in his eyes. That's who this table is for. None of us would ever come to this table saying, I've been pretty good this week. We come saying, I've been really bad this week. But thank God for Jesus. We are encouraged in Scripture to examine our hearts, examine ourselves, see how we're rightly, if we're rightly related with other people. Are we, are we holding on to some sin and saying, I don't want to give it up? Then Paul would say, repent. Examine your hearts. Otherwise, for those of us, it's the time to come and say, God, forgive me. And thank you for Jesus. Let's take a moment to do that now. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your great love. Thank you, Father, that no one had to twist your arm to send your son, Jesus, that you willingly and freely gave him up to bring us sinners who are dreadfully cracked about the head. We are sadly in a, a place and a state of needing to be mended, needing to be transformed. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the great rescue plan that you have put in place, Father, because of your Son. We admit that we want control. We admit, Father, that we are control freaks. We admit that we have lived for ourselves in our own wisdom. We admit that we have turned away from you and your ways, and we ask you to forgive us. We ask you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, God. And we thank you that you do that. And we ask you now, Father, to capture our hearts that we would look to your son in his life and death and resurrection, that we would look to the gospel message and delight in all that you are for us in your son. Thank you, Father, that now as we take these elements, it's a time of celebration. And we come celebrating the fact 
that we are made right with you because of Jesus. Would you stir our hearts by your spirit to love you more? Would you give us your grace even as we take these elements? Would you empower us, God, to live for your glory and to delight in you alone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.